what future he wants to feel and the strategies that he needs to pursue that is buying a house. The future I want is freedom and experience over possession. Therefore, the strategy of living like we do, minimalist, is key. I can't put judgment on his strategies and or behaviors or vice versa. What I can do is assess if they're effective or not. That's where we can look at someone and say, well, look, you say you want this future. The strategies you're pursuing are never going to get you there. And your behaviors are completely out of alignment with that. No wonder you're miserable. Yeah. When we get that alignment, the alignment between that desired end state, the strategies and the behaviors get that right. That looks, I think, looks beautiful almost all the time. Hi, this is Joshua Spodek, and this is Leadership in the Environment. You're not the only one who cares about your impact enough to act. You're part of a global community undeterred by people saying, if others don't change first, then what I do doesn't matter, and other excuses. We've read the science. We can do this. This show is about personal responsibility, acting, and improving your life by your values. As guest after guest says, the challenge was hard, but thank you for getting me to do it. I wish I'd done it earlier. Listen on for leaders to inspire you, hear their struggles, and then act. Go to joshuaspodick.com slash podcast to commit to a public personal challenge of your own. You're not alone, and you don't have to wait for others. You are about to hear a trainer who has reached the top levels of leadership and teaching leadership break down how to learn. In particular, how to learn to learn. How to learn to learn. Let that sink in for a second. Long ago, this sort of thing was not what I would have expected from military training, although since then, I've come to expect it because of how experiential the field is and how critical the leadership is in the field. To me, the conversation you're about to hear felt like a masterclass by a practitioner and educator. Note the precision of his language. At first, I found it pedantic, but then I realized it's not annoying. It's liberating. When you speak English, You don't sometimes switch letters around in words just because you feel like it or because you're not really sure which go where, not if you want people to understand you. So why switch concepts in higher level communication? Actually, it reminded me of a lesson I learned in sailing, so a much lower stakes context than military. But I guess what was happening was I was getting on a sailboat. I stepped off the dock over the lifelines. So one foot was on the dock and one foot was over the lifelines in the boat. The skipper came up and said, Josh, if you get on a boat, the boat might start moving away and you'll get stuck in a bad position if that happens, if you step over the lifelines like that. So step first onto the boat on the outside of the lifelines. Now with both feet on the boat, now step over the lifeline. At first I thought, how pedantic? What difference does it make? I can figure out how to step. It's not that big of a deal. And then I thought, well, if there's a better way and a worse way by whatever standards the skipper used, even if it's just a tiny little difference, why not do it the way that works? And so I appreciated learning something that at first I thought was pedantic. And then I realized if there's a right way and a wrong way, if there's a better way and a worse way, and someone's an expert and they can tell me which is a better and worse way, I want to do it that way. So that's why I appreciated his precision in language and precision in concepts. We're about to join the conversation. I take the liberty of starting with him and me mid-conversation, me sharing a story of something that was relevant to my last conversation with him. So we'll start with me telling him that story. Okay, so welcome to the Leadership in the Environment podcast. This is Joshua Spodok. I'm here with Larry Yatch. Larry, how are you doing? I'm doing well. It's good to see you again. Good to see you too. And okay, so yesterday I go to the park to work on a computer. 
And I sit, this is Washington Square Park in New York City. And I've worked there many times. So I'm sitting on a bench, beautiful sunny day. And as I'm working, just suddenly I get splashed with a huge bunch of water. And like totally out of the blue. I don't know what, the, what happened. And some guy walking past me then who, who has thrown water at me, right? I don't know who this person is. I've never seen him before. I don't know what's going on. And then he proceeds to like act as if he's fall, as if he's been tripped and looks up at me. And, and I'm like, what's going on? And he's like, why did you trip? The guy's like, why did you trip me? Why did you do that? What's going on? Why did you do this? He didn't say that what's going on. He said, why did you trip me? Why would you do such a thing? Right. I did not trip him. There was no contact with me at all. And I'm thinking, this is a scam. I've heard of scams like this. And like, usually it's with a, a tourist where the resident has some advantage with the law or something like that. And I'm, so I'm looking around like, what's the angle here? What am I being scammed? And then he starts raving on about, I'm going to report you to Homeland Security. And I realize, okay, this is a crazy person. Right. I don't know what's going on, why he's done what he's done. But I see that my best angle is not to engage with this guy, but is to go on about my life. And it happened that, you know, it, I brought a long sleeve shirt, so I just changed shirts. And I was like checking to make sure this liquid was water because I, you know, what's going yeah. on? And I just walk away and he's still kind of ranting and I don't know what he's trying to do, but I, eventually he walks away too. And it was near NYU. So I walk in a building where they have to check IDs to, I don't know what, the, I mean, the guy was like out of shape and I don't know what's going on. Like, I'm not feeling threatened by him, except that who knows what, maybe he's carrying something. I don't know. And so I walk in one building where I know there's a different exit out the back so I can leave out the other way. Anyway, so the water gets all over my computer and overnight I left it out. Like as it, my computer works, but the keyboard does not. And my friend was like, don't use the computer because you know, water is in the keyboard. You don't know if it's, a, it seems to be nowhere else, but it might break. And the last thing you want is what, you know, the, you might be using the computer. The fan turns on, blows water or it wasn't now something that worked doesn't work. So he's like, just get off the computer. But I'm a little more risky than that. I, I'm like using the computer, but here's the thing to log into the computer. It gives you a little on-screen keyboard that you can click. Yeah. So that's how I logged in, but I could not, I can't like to use the computer is really tough. I have to only use the mouse. Cause the, the keyboard doesn't work. Right. I mean like one or two keys work and the rest don't. And so I'm like, all right, I'm going to call Larry and say, I can't make the meeting. And I was like, well, it's, it takes a while to schedule with him. We're both pretty busy and the computer does work. And so it was, I, it's like how to get into zoom without using the keyboard. And so luckily, cause I use Linux, I don't have to use control C and control V cause they don't work, but I can use left button to highlight a key and middle button to, to uh, paste. And so I, I've been, it took me like, I had to open up an email to give me a whole bunch of letters. <laughs> and then to pick the individual letters. To One letter at a time. <laughs> and so like I, that got me, luckily like it auto completed my zoom thing. So I could click that to get in there. And then it was like, now you have to log in. I was like, ah, it's like one fifty nine, and I don't want to be late. And now I have to put in my, luckily to put in my email address as quick. Cause I could just copy email address with my right click. But then it was like password and it happened. It's funny. I never noticed that the, the middle of my password happens to be, it happened to be in one of the words. So I get like three letters at once. <laughs> and then I, I log in and it's like two o'clock and you're not there. I was like, I, I would expect you to be there. And then I checked my email and I was like, ah, you were saying which one to go to. And I was like, oh no. 
I have to respond to him. <laughs> and yeah, luckily I found the uh, old ID, so it was easy enough to get in. And I, I wasn't thinking about it until talk until actually like seeing you. I was thinking, oh, this is vaguely like what you're talking about with the the stolen Humvee. Yeah, exactly. I was like what like mission accomplishment. Right. It was like I was hardly breaking a sweat doing this, but it was um, it was kind of like, am I going to do this or not? Of course, I like I didn't plan this in order to not do it. Right. And I don't want to sound like this is like uh, on par with the missions that you spoke about. Well, it's the same stuff. Uh, physiologically, it's the neurologically. Yeah. You know, our brains don't know the difference between uh, getting yelled at or having to overcome this challenge or combat. I mean, ultimately, we've spent 200,000 years on this planet as cave people. Every time we left our cave, our life was at risk. So that's an interesting phenomenon that. It, the way that we respond to stress is the same if, if our life is at risk or not. Uh, our brain and our body doesn't know any difference. Yeah. And how do we respond to stress? Because I think, is this one of the main things you train people in? I mean, this is what training is about, is how to handle stress. It used to be. Our, what was it? Would have been, so I've, I've started and run four different companies. Our second company was uh, referred to as Sealed Mindset. Uh, or sealed mindset training. And we ran a facility where we trained generally uh, families. So non-enthusiasts within firearms or self-defense space. So we looked at the, the fact that we could make a bigger difference with people that were terrified by firearms and never thrown a punch in their life versus an enthusiast, right? The enthusiast has access to information. And so we set up a very unique facility that, that catered to people that wouldn't find themselves in a gun range. And what we ended up finding was that the majority of what we taught was, was mindset, right? Being able to change how people saw their world, how they acted within it, both consciously and subconsciously, which is ultimately what keeps you safe more than your individual skill, say with a firearm or with your fists. And one of the core things we talk about at the very beginning are the physiological responses to stress, because uh, what happens when we're physiologically triggered is very impactful on what you can and can't do. And there's a lot of people out there with false conceptions of what they would actually do if they got in a life and death situation, because they don't understand those physiological effects of stress and they haven't trained in coherence with them. Yeah, my, one of my early companies I began, the other co-founder was a, a Marine, and he said that what boot camp was about, one of the main things was, if you hear an explosion that way, most people go the other way. And he was like, the goal, one of the main goals was that we would go toward it, which is not what most people start with, but that's now what felt, what became natural for him. It's a changed behavior. And ultimately, there's uh, four immediate responses to stress. And what people generally think of is fight or flight, right? You hear, you hear that all the time, but ultimately you're missing out. Uh -huh. Well, even so I, I used to say freeze was the first one, but ultimately what I like, what is, I think more accurate is startle. So there's a startle, which is also a freeze, right? Uh -huh. So you get kind of that initial shock and then a freeze. And that is ultimately to not trigger a predator's chase response, so if we, and you see this, you know, when you go open the door too quick, there's a squirrel out in the yard, they kind of, it like shocks and stops, it startles, and then it takes off running. Uh, human beings do the same thing. So you get that startle slash freeze to start with, then we move to, to flight, then we move to fight. 
then we move to freeze again. So if we haven't been able to get away and we haven't been able to win the fight, we'll eventually freeze again, play dead. So our body gets completely overwhelmed and you freeze once again in the hopes that the predator lets go of you. And those, those are ingrained responses that have been built into us for 200,000 years. And so you can see how when you get the physiological response to stress, which is, we would say, the adrenalized response to stress, that, that chemical cocktail, that hormonal cocktail that's released triggers these things. And unless you specifically train to counter them, you will, you will follow those four things. So the, you talked about a mindset shift, and I feel like it's essential to have this behavioral component to learn it. If you think that you can just learn it by thinking your way through it, you're in for a surprise, I think. Well, there's three, there's three neural pathways you have to work no matter what you're learning. And this is a critical thing, not only in self-defense, but in leadership and being effective, it makes no difference. Any, in, any, in any domain where there's some behavioral aspect to what you're trying to change, and that's a key part. Like if I'm just trying to change the way I think, that's not a behavior. Mm-hmm. You, know, you can change the way you think without, with purely just staying in what I would, what I would say is the understanding part of it, right? So the, the cognitive understanding. So I can change the way I think about something, the way I perceive something through just cognitive understanding. If I want to change my behavior, I have to work through the next two neural pathways or neural systems, one of which the next one. So you have cognitive understanding. That's where I understand something, right? That's one part of the brain. The next part of the brain is conscious application. So I have to consciously apply what I learned in my body, in my behavior, And the third is subconscious application. So being able then to apply that same behavior without having to consciously call it up. Let's talk about it in relation to throwing a punch. So when it comes to throwing a punch, I have to first understand, I have to get some grounding on what a punch is, when I would throw a punch. You know, the fact that a punch is your fist and that you could go uh, with a jab or a cross or hook and they're different, right? That's all cognitive understanding. I need to have that before I can consciously apply, apply that knowledge. Conscious application would be if you've ever done any sort of boxing mitt work where they have a mitt and, and the, the coach will say, okay, punch the mitt. Mm-hmm. Uh, another might be like hit the bag, right? Hit the heavy bag. Uh, you might get a series of numbers like one, two, right? A jab cross. And so what you're, they're doing is consciously applying the skill. So I'm giving you some sort of stimulus and telling you to call up your cognitive understanding to then implement the behavior. That's where most people stop. So what you're doing there is building one, the understanding, but then you're building the neural pathway for the actual develop, use of the skill. Think of it like building a highway. So you first have to get the plans together with cognitive understanding. Then you have to build the neural pathway for the behavior, which is building a highway. But if you don't have an on-ramp to a highway, your highway is useless. Mm-hmm. And this is where most people go wrong, right? If I'm only consciously applying my skill, I don't have an on-ramp. An on-ramp it's a highway in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. Uh, it might go somewhere, but or, you can't get on it. Uh-huh. So the way we get on it is to build on-ramps. And an on-ramp is a stimulus that triggers the need to get on that highway, right? So if I don't tie external, external stimuli to the use of that particular behavior, that particular highway, the highway is useless. And that's how we we get that through subconscious application or gaining experience. So if we want to use simple terms, cognitive understanding is all about learning. Conscious application is about practicing. And subconscious application is about 
gaining experience where I'm tying a stimulus to my highway. I'm tying the right on-ramps. Where we go wrong in behavior a lot of times is people tie the wrong stimulus to the behavior. It'd be like taking a northbound on-ramp into southbound traffic. And that's where we get ineffective behaviors, right? Where I learned something or tied some sort of, say, uh, in a behavioral thing, uh, if you show aggression towards me, I start yelling at you. Can I offer another example? Yeah, sure. When I learned, say, French in high school, yeah. I learned to say the, co- the say to conjugate a verb in a sitting in a chair in a classroom in order to get a grade. I would get a grade, and now I learned how to conjugate verbs, which is not speaking a language. So my on-ramp went to- That's practice. You're practicing, right? You have cognitive understanding and you're doing some practice in the classroom, but you're not gaining any experience with the My on-ramp is, like in, is in a totally unrelated situation than Paris. Right. So your teacher calling on you in class, you could probably call, you could probably, that's the on-ramp onto the, cog, the conjugation of the verb. When you get into Paris and some beautiful woman asks you for directions and you just freeze. Yeah. You haven't tied the right stimulus to the response that you need. And what I, what I really want to get across to everyone is this is fundamentally how our brains work. So it doesn't matter if I'm talking about throwing punches. Example of throwing punches, right? I first have to have that cognitive understanding of what a punch is, when I should punch, what, how I punch, which hand, all those things. Then I have to practice the punching. That would be the mitt work. If I never spar, if I never get in and actually spar where I, I get to see the right time to throw the punch and tie it to my skill, you're not going to work. It's not going to work. And I could take this, take some, uh, I'll just say woman that's taken cardio kickboxing classes for 27 years. She is unbelievably quick when they're saying, okay, jabbed. And they are cut, they're calling off one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four. And she's knocking it out. And then all of a sudden you wait till she gets outside of the, the gym and you go at her and push her and throw a punch at her. She's just going to get hit in the face. Oh because yeah. There's the on ramps, the stimulus to trigger what is already a really well-established neural pathway or highway. I think a bunch of major league baseball players were put up against some softball pitchers and they couldn't strike or they couldn't hit the ball because they're used to their on ramps are for overhand pitches and a different size ball. Yep. Exactly. And the cool part, again, the, the, the point I want to reiterate again is no matter what we're talking about, this is the same, right? This is necessary. And for me, it's the formula for production of power. So I, my distinction for power is the ability to influence change just on a fundamental level. Now, if we look at electrical power, that electricity has the ability to influence change in the filament of a light bulb. Uh, political power, military power, physical power, it doesn't make a difference. Power is always the ability to influence change. And as a human, our primary source of power is learning, right? Even physical power, I can't physically change my environment without learning first and gaining some practice. Watch a two-year-old, right? Or a one-year-old as they start to develop their power, they're learning, they're practicing, and they're gaining experience. And so the formula for power for human beings is learn, practice, experience. And in any domain, you can apply that. If I want to influence change in any domain in my life, I need to produce power. Power is the ability to influence change. The way that I produce power is learning, practicing, gaining experience. Now, power without control is useless. Lightning 
is has unbelievable power, ability to influence change, but we can't harness that until we can control it. Same thing with electricity. Until we're able to control the electricity through wire switches and filaments, we can't actually influence change that we want. Also, the wiring for electricity, this is what you were talking about last time, which is the ability to recognize that we can wire ourselves. I mean, the analogy used about the roads is really not that far off because these, I mean, you're connecting asphalt together, but in our minds, it's connecting the neurons together, like literally making neural connections in a way that would look like a highway if you mapped it out. And our, the power to do that predictably, reliably, consistently. As a human being, all of it, like the core source of our ability to produce power as a human being is our ability to recognize patterns in our world and then tie those patterns to something useful which is learn, practice, gain experience. And it goes back to control. So this is an interesting part too. So if power is the ability to influence change, what's control? Control is illustrated power in a specific domain. Illustrated power in a specific... Can you clarify that? Yeah. So power is the ability to influence change. Until I can take my power and actually leverage it and use it to change something in a specific situation, I'm not, I can't, I'm not illustrating control of my power. And so power is the ability to influence change. Control is illustrated power in a specific situation. Now, think of it in potential kinetic energy. Power is potential energy. Control is kinetic energy. It's when I take my power and actually influence change with intention or with with control. And the recipe for that is very similar as well. So if you take learning and you put action to something you've learned, you illustrate knowledge, right? You use knowledge. Mm-hmm. So if you take practice, you've done a whole bunch of practice and you put action to that practice, you're illustrating skill. If you take experience and you put action to experiences you've, you've built over time, you illustrate confidence. And so control is the ability to use your power in a a specific domain by leveraging your knowledge, your skill, and illustrating confidence. So if you want to gain confidence in any domain, there's a really simple formula. You have to learn, you have to practice, you have to gain experience. You then have to take that, put it into the world by leveraging your knowledge, your skill. And in doing that, you're going to increase your confidence. It's formulaic, at least the way I look at it. It's systematic. It's, it's, yes. if you, if you turn the crank, the results will emerge. And what's neat about this is we can go backwards. You know, you could say, where in my life do I want to build confidence? Okay. What skills do I need to develop? What knowledge do I need to have to be able to leverage those skills? What kind of experiences do I need to gain? How can I practice before I need to risk it? Cause the difference between practice and experience is risk. If I'm practicing, I can fail with little to no risk. As I start to induce, put risk into it, I start to gain experience. You can go backwards, right? If I need to gain these experiences, how can I safely practice in an environment where I can fail? And then what do I have to learn? So we can go backwards and you, you create a formula for developing confidence in any domain in your life. Yeah. One of my questions, along with the questions you asked is who has done this before or who has this and how can I, can I learn the way that they learned? Right, exactly. What what skill do they have? What knowledge are they leveraging? And then where can I gain that knowledge and skill through learning and practicing, gaining experience? Which almost forces you not to think, oh, well, they're just like that. Yeah, and fixed versus growth mindset. And if you've ever heard of that stuff, those yeah. that those distinctions, right? Fixed mindset is 
my skill is, is inherent into my genetics and the way I was born. Growth mindset is if I put effort towards something, I get better. And if they're good at it, they must've had some sort of practice. And if I had that practice, I will also get good at it. If you're in a growth mindset, if you're in a fixed mindset, someone that has skill is a threat. Because look, if I'm fixed, a fixed mindset, my skill is fixed by what I was born with, and this person is good already, then they're always going to be better than me. Therefore, it's a threat. You yeah. see people like that all the time, right? That that are threatened by people that have success versus like you and I, hardcore growth mindset, right? I'm inspired. Like It's amazing when someone has success because I'm like, if they can do it, I can do it. Yeah. And if you get me started on, because then you, you start saying like, the words victim and privilege start showing up in there. And I just can't stand, I, I don't want to get started in that because then I'll just. Um, I can't. It's <laughs> the, one of the things that drives me the most insane is a victim mindset. I, I can't, it literally, yeah, I get, I can't take it. So let's, yeah, let's, let's not go there. So something that comes to me a lot is that talking about mindset shifts, a lot of times people will say, Talk about environmental action. I'm, I'm talking, talking to someone. What do, you call, what do you consider a mindset? So uh, what's your so distinction I, for mindset? How do you define it? I'll give you an example. So a lot of people say to me, the earth, they'd like to see it a lot cleaner, more clean air, clean land, clean water. Uh, they recognize that they're doing things that pollute. They would like to change, but they don't feel they can. And they want to raise their awareness. They think the first step they should do is to raise their awareness, raise their consciousness. Now, I think that they're... If you just, at least from what I've heard, you've covered two or three mindsets in that so, statement, in that description alone. As I see it, their mindset is there's something there I don't understand. And when I understand it, I will act. And I don't yet get it. And so therefore I can't act. So that might be a kind of core operating system, you know, behind, which you could say is a mindset. As you've probably found, like with me, distinctions are key. If I say a word more than three or four times, something like mindset, and I don't have a one-line functional distinction for it, I'm going to go find it or make it. Because you and I could have a 10-minute conversation now about mindset and be talking about two very different things based on the fact that our fundamental understanding of mindset is different. And so one of the greatest powers I've ever seen and I've, I've leveraged to a great extent is the power of language and precision in language mm -hmm. and as opposed to being careless in my language and making assumptions that just because, uh, you know, we, we have really connected and been really similar in a lot of stuff. I'm not going to make an assumption that when you say mindset and I say mindset, we mean the same thing. Yeah. So within that, I kind of start from there, like, okay, then what do we mean by mindset? What is that? Yeah. And I think you explain that effectively. And, and, and that's like the place to do it because to be precise about being why be precise. And to me, I think if, if someone's listening being like, what a, what a stickler, what a geek. I think it's more, it's liberating because. Exactly. Yeah. So I, as soon as you said that, I was like, okay, let's, let's make sure we're talking about the same thing here. Yeah. So and, for me, a mindset mindset is mindset is the filter through which we perceive our world and act in it. So mindset is a two way street. And within a connection to that is perception. So if you can look at perception, to me, perception is the two-way street between the sensing, our sensing body and our thinking brain and our thinking brain and our sensing body. So our body senses something, it sends a signal to our brain. Our brain makes sense of it, which is perception, and then it sends signals back to our body to respond. That's perception. The distinction that I have between mindset and perception is, is proactivity. So perception is passive. Mindset is, can be active if you choose to make it so. 
And all of a sudden, when I start to say my mindset can control my perception, and we see that all the time, I can't control my perception. But when I start to control the filter through which I see everything and act in it, mm-hmm. now all of a sudden I start to control my perception. I control my perception. I control my reality. And that means I can change my reality at will. So I'm going to go in, to be precise, you said it can be active. I think it would always be active. It can be conscious or not. I mean, your mind is always going to What I mean by active filter. is, am I- By, by choice. choice. I, yeah, am I influencing Deliberate. my mindset or is my mindset in control of me, right? And so, what the example you said about the person that wants to do, you know, wants to clean, thinks the world's dirty, wants to clean it up, but they don't know something, so they don't do anything- I would imagine that they are not actively controlling or even thinking about their mindset, their filter. They're just acting. Yeah. And so now I'm, I'm more interested in just kind of pursuing where this goes than specifically getting an answer, because I think getting this groundwork, I think it'll make conversation more productive later. I don't know where that's going to go. And, and when you say you can change your world, to me, this is like Viktor Frankl is like the, my huge role model in this area because he was in Auschwitz. And he made his life about bliss and love. And perpetually, I say to myself, is my situation, like if I'm feeling an emotion that I don't want to feel, sometimes I'm angry and I, the anger is directing me in a direction I want, right? Great. The word to use for that, because I've been playing with this, is there are no good or bad emotions. There's just oh, yeah. effective or ineffective emotions. Yes. Right. Anger can be ineffective or it can be effective. And so as soon as I take good and bad out of it, that opens up a whole new world of conversation to just effective or ineffective. Sometimes love or care is ineffective in a specific situation. And so once we take that flavoring away from it, it gives us a much better ability to connect with our emotions and influence them. Yeah. I, the reader, the listeners won't notice my eyes bugged out because I say I effective, ineffective, also useful, and unuseful because I think of our, we inherited our emotional system from our ancestors and when anger helped them, they had kids and when anger and whatever emotion, the lack of anger in their brothers and sisters that didn't lead to us, they didn't survive. So in that context, it wasn't good or bad. And to me, when you start calling emotions good or bad, the result, there's a lot of middle steps, but the result is people going, I'm not angry. Like, <laughs> exactly. Which just angry. makes them more angry. <laughs> makes them more ineffective is the way I look at it. And it, lower, it lowers their self-awareness. And I've never heard a leader say lower self-awareness helps. No. So- if you want, I, I worked this weekend. I had an intensive meditation retreat for three days and I had a, a really big, I made a really big step forward on, I've always held that I create my reality because of the fundamentals of the fact that I don't actually sense anything. So I don't directly sense you know, the readers or the listeners can't see it, but I'm holding a water bottle in my hand, right? I can't sense this water bottle. All I can sense are the electrical signals that my brain's making up about it. And ultimately, if I triggered electrically the right parts of my brain, I could feel the water bottle in my hand and not have it. Mm -hmm. So I'm always one step removed from reality, the actual physical reality, based Mm -hmm. on the fact that I can't directly sense anything. Only my brain can make sense of the signals that my, my nerves are sending. So if that's the case, if I don't directly sense anything, I always have that filter of perception and mindset between the physical world and and my perception of that physical world or my experience of that physical world, then that means I can control my reality Mm -hmm. by choosing different realities, by choosing different filters. So that's 
kind of a fundamental thing I held. The growth, if you want to go down it, because this gets pretty deep, uh, but super interesting, is about past and future. So how does past and future connect to our reality in the moment? And there's a pretty, it was a pretty cool awakening if you want to go down that rabbit hole. I do in a second. I also want to play around with this a bit because one thing that I think I read this, but I've incorporated that when most people say objective, objective reality versus subjective reality, what they mean is objective is something that they can test and verify and it's there. So they would say, objectively, the water bottle is there. Now, in regular conversation, I will speak in the language that they understand me in. But from everyone's personal perspective, actually, oh, and, and what they would call subjective is maybe your opinion about it. Is it hot or is it cold? It's heavy, because, it's cold. I like yeah. it. I don't like it. Now, from your personal experience, what they're calling subjective is actually your objective reality, that you do sense your emotions directly. That is not through something external. But it is through a filter. There are filters, but it, to the extent you can sense those filters, that becomes part. That becomes more available to you. And so from your actual perspective, what people call objective is subjective. And what people call subjective is objective, which to I me put, the, put a primacy onto my emotions as that is when people talk about meaning and purpose, to me, that's a, those are shorthand words for the emotions that I feel. And if I can through... Or want to avoid the feelings that I want to feel and or, or want not, yeah. the feelings I want to avoid, those are, you know, purpose. That is purpose, right? Our purpose is towards, towards some future state of feeling and towards a future state of feeling that is, is minus that I don't want to feel which I wasn't the most elegant way to say that, but you know, the, the concept being of we're driven, we're always driven by producing some future emotional state and to yes. avoid other emu- emotional states. Yes. And, and the primacy of emotion. And if you want meaning and purpose in your life, chasing material stuff is the value of those things. The meaning of those things, it comes through what, how we feel about them, but there's a big play that we have, it's not just like money can buy me food, therefore it's valuable. It's how it makes us feel. Uh, now with you, I have, to be preci- I have to be precise. It's to some extent, I can look at a pile of garbage and say, this is the beauty of nature. I can do that. It, took a, it takes a lot of work. Some people. And, I mean, I think of the garbage artists, the guys that take garbage and make amazing art from it. I call them garbage artists where they go around. They're like, oh, there's that broken wheel and that half a plate and that bench and then they go and weld it together and some beautiful thing mm-hmm. to them garbage is beautiful yeah I have, have exercise. For that. I have this exercise when i'm doing workshops i put up a picture of the rocky mountains and i say okay uh how would you describe this and you know grand and and beautiful and okay and then i put a picture of the of the appalachians and they're smaller mountains and i say okay here's the challenge for you what you saw in the rockies see that in this it's you know it's it's there if you want to see it and you know take a while and get it to work now I put up a picture of Central Park, which has like a couple of rolling hills. The, the peak is like 10 feet. Yeah. And I say, okay, now you see in this what you saw in, in the Appalachians, which means that you also see it in the Rockies. And what's happening is you're, it's experiential and you know, you know what I'm talking about. And then I put up a grain of sand and it's like a nice little thing because what you're seeing is nature in a new way. But what you're, what you're learning about is that you're developing a skill. And then 
I stopped doing this one. I call that framing. It's it developed as a skill, right? Yeah, a skill of framing so I can frame what I'm seeing in different ways. And so then I put, here's one that I, I, I've gotten in trouble for doing this one because it's a little too much for people. But I go, I, I say, okay, now I put up a picture of a hummingbird, then a butterfly, then a moth, right? So far, so good. Cockroach, and then people are like, then I lose people. And then I put like a bacteria or a virus. And I have a time, this guy, and I was like, imagine it's an AIDS virus in someone that you love. Yeah. And that, like, that's too much for people. But, <laughs> but it didn't come out of nowhere because I know that like Buddhists will meditate on death and stuff like that. And to me, it's, can I see that? And then- And you make it real and true for you. Yes, true and real, exactly. Because then that affects my reality. My experience of reality is- It changes your reality because all you have is your experience of reality. Yeah, and one time- that's the point I want to, I always keep drawing towards is, you know, all we have is our experience of reality. So if I can change my experience of reality, I'm changing my reality. And why wouldn't I? I mean, I've sought and never found a case where I where suffering makes my life better or, and it may be. Well, what's the, I, I think we yeah. talked about this before the difference between suffering and accomplishment is purpose, right? When I am yeah. putting out effort, not getting anywhere, it feels like suffering when I'm putting out effort, even if I'm not getting anywhere, but it's towards a purpose, my purpose, I feel accomplishment. And so the only person that can make you suffer in this world is you. It's yourself. Yeah. Actually, Oh man, you're someone I could ask about this. It occurred to me, I could develop my skills to not suffer, to create purpose, to create meaning. Mm -hmm. Now, maybe someone else has a skill to make me suffer, to distract me, to undo that, to torture me. Yeah. So they're not, their skill is not necessarily to put you in environments that are painful or hard. Their skill is to make you lose your purpose. That would be the purpose of, of the SEAL training. Yes, they want to get people to lose it and ring the bell or step to the left or whatever. So it's possible that there are people out there who are better at that than you are. Yeah, that's why 90% of the people that start SEAL training quit. Because the instructors are better at producing an environment where you lose your purpose than you are at holding your purpose. That's why for me, a prerequisite to, to making it through SEAL training is I'm going to be a SEAL or I'm going to be dead. There is nothing in between. You also trained to get there. I mean, you didn't start with just what you had as a child. Yeah, I conditioned my ability to self-regulate, which is a skill just like baseball is a skill or writing a baby is a skill. I conditioned my ability to self-regulate because that's controlled by two parts of the brain that work the same way as every other part of the brain. So our cerebellum controls hand-eye coordination. We all know the more we practice hand-eye coordinate, juggling, say, I develop more neural pathways in my cerebellum and I get better at juggling. If I don't practice juggling, I'm never going to get good at it because I don't have the neural connections. The two parts of our brain, it's the ACC and the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex. The ACC is anterior cruciate cortex. These two parts of the brain control all self-regulation. They work the same way as the cerebellum. You either have a bunch of neural connections there or you don't. And you either are practiced at quitting or you're practiced at at self-regulation. And so my entire life was about putting money in the self-regulation bank, creating neural pathways there so that when I needed them, when that, when that instructor who is an expert at distracting me from my purpose of becoming a SEAL to make my a sense of accomplishment of making it through the obstacle course or spending another five minutes in the cold water turn into pure suffering and no accomplishment, mm-hmm. I have more self-regulation than he does. 
And if I have that, if I put that money in the bank over years and years and years, I graduate. And the guy that hasn't put the money in the bank doesn't. That's why often the gifted athletes are the first ones to quit because they've never had to work hard. Mm-hmm. They, had, they were physically more gifted than those of us that weren't. And so when they were the star athlete and they were not having a hard time in practice and they were getting recognition, they weren't building neural connections in those two parts of the brain. And as soon as they got into a situation where they had to then, you know, withdraw some money, they didn't have any, they came up short and they quit. And when someone else sees, so someone else sees you guys doing what you're doing and they're seeing people shivering in the cold water or what you're experiencing. Let me see if I can get this. I mean, the, the language that I would say before talking to you would be, you're discovering yourself. You're getting, you're peeling away everything that's not you to what is you. But I think you would say it's um, all that exists is me. Is, is that about right? Is that, I mean, yeah, I'd say nothing else exists. And ultimately, this is what's even like, and this took years and years and years of study and research to figure this out, but it connected a bunch of dots to me. They took a rugby team, so college rugby team, so hard guys, right? Really mm-hmm. strong, hard guys. They put them on a bike, said, bike as hard as you can for as long as you can. They produce, I think it was like around 800 watts in about 12 minutes. From there, uh, they let them rest for two weeks, brought them back perfectly fresh. So physically, completely fresh. They, it's, I believe, called a Stroop or Strop test, S-T-R-O-O-P test. So they showed them, they would flash a card and it would have a color like green in brown letters. Uh So the word green, but it was brown letters. And your job was to, as quickly as you could, say what color the letters were. So... Mm -hmm. By the nature of us reading, we would have to mentally self-regulate our desire to say green and instead say brown. Mm-hmm. So we're testing mental regula- self-regulation. And they did this for, say, 10, 15 minutes. So perfectly fresh guys put them back on the bike. Just after doing that test, they produced, on average, 25% less power. How is that possible? How could you take someone that, that produced 800 watts, have them be perfectly rested physically, and they produce 25% less. And the only reason is because our ability to self-regulate is fixed and mental, physical, and emotional are controlled by the same part of the brain. By doing that Stroop test, you, you wore them out. Mm-hmm. You mentally wore them down so that when they had to then self-regulate to produce more power, they couldn't. So if we forward that to buds, we got two guys, say myself and you were on a log, right? And our job is to hold the log over our head. I'm on the front, you're on the back, same weight on both sides. You're sitting there worried about the fact that the instructors don't like you. You're worried about the fact that they don't like you so much that you're probably going to fail. And then you're worried about how are you going to tell your dad and your girlfriend and all your friends that you failed. Right. I'm busy trying to say, that's not green. I should say brown. Yes. So, and I'm sitting there, all I'm doing is pushing the log because I know I'm a SEAL. I'm going to graduate. This is what I do. Yeah. I push the log until I can't push the log anymore. And then I push it longer. You would be 25% weaker than me if we had the same physical strength. So your log is going to come down 25% quicker than me. And you're going to be able to push up 25% less weight simply by the fact that you're spending your ability, your, your limited capacity to self-regulate on something else. So now I'm thinking it's, it's beyond that you're getting yourself. There's your, you're, it's purpose. You're, you are, the word I, it's joy. It's glory, I think is the word. So I was expecting, when I answered, when I asked you that last time, 
I thought I was going to hear words like service and honor and duty. And when I said them, you, those weren't off, but I think that those core one was selfish. I mean, pure selfishness. So those things give you direction. And then the magnitude of it maybe is the power behind it has to come from, this is who I am and I have to prove it. So it could have been that you were born someone who liked uh, adulation, in which case you would do it in a different direction. You would, you would reach the pinnacle. Yeah, of, I would be a performer on the stage. And then, oh, and then it would be when you were practice, say you were a guitar player and you practice to your fingers are bleeding and people would say that looks painful. You'd be like, it's glory because that's a part of being of, you know, and, and oddly enough, uh, so I blew out my knee. I don't know last time we talked, but I tore my ACL and lateral meniscus uh, like a month and a half ago and had surgery. And I'm not allowed to do, as they say, any high intensity activities for six months, which is my life. Like I can't, I'm a professional skydiver. I'm going to miss the whole skydiving season. I can't kite surf. I can't, I, they're still skiing out here in Utah. I can't do that. I can't mountain bike. Like everything that I would do to ground myself, I can't do. Luckily, I started picking up the guitar for the intent to solely be able to produce a state of flow without being weather dependent. The reason I ski or bike or jump is to produce that state of flow, but it's always weather dependent. So I started playing the guitar about uh, six, seven months ago. And what's amazing, I went to my first lesson and the guy said, what's your goals for music? And I looked at him and said, uh, I want to, I want you to teach me a series of tools that I can use to make sounds I find beautiful. Mm -hmm. And he looked at me like I was insane. What songs do you want to play? I was like, I don't want to play any songs. I don't want to learn anyone else's music or songs. I don't want to play for anyone. I solely want a series of tools I can use to create noises I find beautiful. So completely 100% internal motivation to be able to produce a state of flow and a sense of joy that I could produce beautiful sounds that only I find beautiful. I could care less. And it's amazing because I've been playing for, you know, for six months. I'm getting pretty good, but I don't know how to play one song. So I don't care because I'm using it as a tool to produce flow and expose who I am through making these noises to me. That's type, that's type part of focus, the same focus in seal training. Yeah. It's really the word glory. I really like it. It's uh real self-realization, like realization of your, of your truth having, and the, to do that. And this is, a, this is another, like, if you're, if you're listening, this is one to take notes on, because this applies to everything, running teams, high performance, individually, high, helping others have high performance. If I don't have alignment between three things, I'm screwed. The first one is we'll say vision. Cause that's what most people identify as, but but purpose, uh, I say desired end state is my, my terminology for that. But what do I want to feel and what do I want to avoid feeling in the future? So that's the first thing. Second thing is strategy. What strategies are going to produce that? And the third thing is behaviors. What behaviors fulfill those strategies? Anytime we're in dysfunction in our life, anytime our team's in dysfunction as a team, anytime anyone it, on that team is not is in some sort of dysfunction, it's because either the purpose the strategy or the behaviors are out of alignment. And all it takes is one. I could have the best purpose in the world. I could know exactly what I have to do to do it. But if my behaviors don't line up with that, I'm screwed. I could have the, the most effective behaviors in the world in a false strategy, a, a strategy that's flawed, even if my vision or purpose is in alignment with my behaviors. If the strategy's off, it's not going to work. If I have no vision or if my vision's off or my purpose is off, I could be the most effective behaviors in the most effective strategies going the wrong direction. 
And so using that as a fundamental tool to diagnose like where, where do I have a lack of alignment? You can figure out a lot of times where you got to put attention to improve your performance, improve team performance, improve someone's performance on your team. This is where I, when you describe those things, I was thinking of my environmental action, my environment, my, that, that direction. And I certainly have a, a vision, clean air, clean water, like an earth, like actually it's very specific. There's something, there's more complexity to it, but one, there's one thing that I have is that I think we're not going to escape like wars bigger than Syria and, and there's going to be people dying and all sorts of like hundreds of millions of refugees. I think that's inescapable at this point. I mean, actually. It only is if you say it is like, if you want to live in that truth, it's true. Well, actually that's why I was stopping myself because I believe (laughs) everyone see everyone. There's so many things that everyone gets wrong about the environment. And I'm not talking about the counts of CO2 or the amount of plastic in the ocean. One of them is that everyone sees this stuff as a chore and it's like, you got to go out of your way to separate and recycle. And everyone's like, Oh, give me a break, Josh. I'm doing what I can. I'm recycling. What more do you want from me? I'm not as good as you. Okay. I'm like, I'm not, I didn't, I didn't put that morality into it, but, and a lot of things, here's things people get a lot wrong is uh, how are we going to feed 11 billion people? How, what are we going to do when all these countries, uh, China wants to live like we do? Or as we do. And then um, Nigeria is going to have as many people in India and so forth. How are we going to, what's going to happen when they all want cars? And I'm like, we're not doing so well ourselves with all this material stuff. Have we lost all sense of humility that we're, do we believe that we are at, at optimal here? Because I've gotten rid of a lot, a lot of stuff and it's, I've found it improved my life. Now it was challenged in some ways, but I think we could. Well, so it depends, say, right? That's where it depends. That's why we have to have let's say purpose or desired end state strategy and behaviors in alignment, right? So for you, and I'm on the same path as you relative to stuff, you know, my family of four, I have a five-year-old and a two-and-a-half-year-old, my wife, we got two plastic bins each in a suitcase and we move all across the country every six months. We own nothing. We own everything we own fits in the back of the SUV. Mm-hmm. And we don't own anything. And, and we have found absolute freedom in that. Yeah. I've got a friend that I just talked to today who's getting married and buying a house. And that is the biggest, most amazing step in his life to have safety, security, stability. Whereas his, what, what future he wants to feel and the strategies that he needs to pursue that is buying a house. The, the, stra- the future I want is freedom and experience over possession. Therefore, the strategy of living like we do, minimalist, is key. I can't put judgment on his strategies and or behaviors or vice versa. What I can do is assess if they're effective or not, right? That's where we can look at someone and say, well, look, you say you want this future. Mm -hmm. The strategies you're pursuing are never going to get you there. And your behaviors are completely out of alignment with that. (laughs) No wonder you're miserable. Yeah. But when we get that alignment, the alignment between that desired end state, the strategies and the behaviors, get that right, that looks, I think, looks beautiful almost all the time, even so, if I don't like it or want it. So for me, when I'm living this way, so I have, you know, I envision, and at a cultural level, if I think most Americans could drop their material consumption, speaking loosely, 80, 90%, and all of that, the first 5% would be hard. And would push them and would push them probably to discover their values and to put them in alignment. But then the next 80% would be pure improvement. Oh, and easy. Like getting, get rid of this, get rid of this, get rid of this. And I don't, and, and it's getting rid of, I'm speaking broadly. And 
not until they reach like the last 10% is it going to be like the challenging things, which is actually also going to increase, keep increasing the signal to noise. And that's where we, so from now, now that we have to move things, every time we move something, we moved uh, twice in the last, you know, we've been in Park City, Utah for six months, but we've had to move, move in the middle of it. So we're three months, one place, three months, another. When I, when we went to move, I then looked at everything I owned again, which now I can do in three hours and supposed to three weeks. I looked at everything I owned and made a decision. Do I keep this or not? Cause I'm like, I don't want to move it down to the point of like dress shirts. I had six dress shirts. I'm like, do I really need six or could I just have three? Cause that, I mean, I could get this down to just a couple. And, and it was really interesting to get to the point where we are now is like, honestly, there isn't much excess. Like they're really, I got rid of like a pair of shoes and a couple shirts, but there wasn't much else. I'm like, wow, we use everything we have at this point. Yeah. And then what you have is so, my pressure cooker is so meaningful to me. And of course it's easily replaceable. I mean, I can, I can have my stuff in the store. Like this is my special water bottle and I have one of them and that's the thing. This thing here, this thing holding my microphone, the microphone stand, do you know how long it's like this arm thing? I don't know if you can see it. Anyway, someone told me to buy it. Like right off, it took me like a year and a half to buy that thing. It's like, you can get it $10 online, but was it going to be worth it? And I had to check Craigslist almost daily for like a year to see if someone was getting rid of one so I could get it used. And now when I use it, I'm using it. <laughs> What's interesting with boys, and this is our kids, children, uh, for any of those from out there are kids. So we've made a rule with our boys that if they receive a new toy, they have to pick a toy of equal volume to get rid of because they have a bin. And if the bin overflows, well, we can't, you can't move it. So it's been amazing to watch them make value-based decisions on, do I really want to get rid of this thing that I already have for this new thing? And it's amazing how many times they choose not to, because they don't want to give it up. What's also cool is they aren't giving it up. They're, they're going to give it to a boy that needs it. Mm-hmm. Putting it so back in circulation. Yeah. yeah. That sense of, you know, we talked to them because we're getting ready to move again here in a couple of weeks. So it was, okay, it was time to make sure everything fit in the bin and there's some extra stuff. So I was like, okay, they got to pick. So we have a two and a half year old and a five year old. So they're not old, right? And they got to go through all their toys and get it down to one bin. And they were excited because they got to give all these things that they really love to some other boy that was going to enjoy it. And just that perspective as opposed to the perspective of new stuff. And it was our son's birthday uh, last Friday. So a couple of days ago, we don't buy presents. Because he would have to get rid of half his toys if we pop presents. So we buy experiences. You know, what does what do you want to experience over the next couple of days for your birthday? So he he got to choose his experiences that he wanted. He didn't have to give up any of his toys. So he this- did unwrap one gift. Imagine a five year old being super excited about his birthday and not getting one gift to unwrap. Well, I can imagine it. And you know, Colonel Mark Reed at West Point, he. Uh, he took on a challenge from this podcast of, of for the month of December, he and his family, he, did, he had to check with his family after, but they, they were all in on it. They were going to reduce the amount of garbage they produced by half. Yep. It happened to be last December. So that's Christmas. And so they said, all right, how are we going to make this work? Okay, no wrapping paper. But then they didn't stop there. And they decided no gifts. And they went to, and so they took a, a short trip to Quebec and, and spent the time together. And he said that, I mean, you have to ask them to make sure, but he said, He's confident that everyone in the family would say best Christmas ever. Yep. And not despite no gifts, but because of no gifts. And so 
when this makes sense to people, the idea of not having wars over resources, like really avoiding all those predictions is possible because if we, if this, if my goal, my vision is this at a cultural level of think of the abundance that comes from it. Oh yeah. There, there is then abundance as opposed to scarcity. Yeah. And it's abundance of things that aren't emitting pollution. It's, it's, it's love and emotion and relationships and meaning and purpose. And, and that's, that's my game. And that's what I'm getting myself. And so when people see me not flying, they see this, like they see no, a lack of an Eiffel tower. And, you know, if, if, if there was a magic world where I could teleport using no energy to get to the Eiffel tower, I'd go. Yes. But I don't live in that world. And I've found that enjoying the world as, and I find embracing what I find out there. Yep. If I can accept something, I can celebrate it. And so I work to celebrate these things. And which is my back to mindset, right? Exactly. Yeah. And so anytime I find myself saying, all right, I got to learn to accept this. I'm like time to celebrate it. And that's a bit of a challenge, but I like that. And so they don't see the joy. I, maybe I got to change my language for them. I, this is what I'm working on. And maybe I can enlist your help as to how do we get this on a, I put we in there, but I shouldn't say we, unless you want to join me in, in this particular endeavor of getting on a cultural level, this feeling of embracing and enjoying clean air, clean water, clean land. I mean, to the extent to acting on one's environmental values. And I think that I take for granted that we, there's enough overlap in these things that I can take for granted that if I'm acting on my environmental values and you're acting on yours, that generally overall, we're all going to agree that at least for the first big part of it, we're going to, it's going to, we're going to like that. Yeah, I agree. And the challenge, one of my big challenges is, is, uh, it's going to stop patronizing. I haven't shared this enough. I haven't practiced this enough is helping people get to where, see, I've, I've talked to enough people that after they've made the switch that they're like, Oh, I wish I'd done this earlier. This is easier than I thought. Thank you. And I think that that's available to a lot of people to virtually to almost everyone, to the overwhelming majority of people. And for them to see the joy in this, to, for them to experience the, the camaraderie, the, the emotional reward of this, it's not a chore. It's a joy. I think the key, so if, if I was to say, okay, what's, what's the, the critical point to push on for this? Like where, if you put your attention, could you have the biggest impact on this, on people? And I would say it's on presence, being present in the moment. So the ability to enjoy what's around me depends on my, my presence in the moment, my, you know, even gifts or wanting the desire to own something is about the future, right? Oh, my life's going to be better when I have that new car, right? People are going to look at me to want to have that new car as opposed to being present in the moment. We can't experience the future. We can't experience the past. All we can do is experience the moment we're in and are in that moment, our perception of the past and the future, which we can change. And so the ability to have people be more present in the moment, I think will have the biggest impact on their, their ability to, because how many things can I enjoy? How many physical things can I enjoy in a moment? Like one or two, like I can't enjoy my boat, my car, my plane and my jet ski all at the same time. It's only one thing at a time. And so that focus on being present for us uh, the ability to focus on the presence of the experiences that we're having with our son and during his birthday is what, where all the joy came from, not 
the future of being able to play with a new toy. Feeling inspired? Do you like hearing others acting that you're not alone? Go to joshuaspodek.com slash podcast to hear other interviews, but even more valuable. Join the growing community of people who care enough to act, not just talk. Read the list of people who have taken on personal challenges and then commit to one yourself. Don't be surprised if you end up loving it, changing more, and finding people following you without you even trying. That's what happens when you improve your life by living by your values. So when I talk to my dad, my dad flies around like crazy. And I ask him, on, you know, what, what limit is there to flying? Like, under what conditions would you, would you not fly? But he, t- I mean, he generally, a lot of his flying is to visit family overseas. Right. So for him, the moment is seeing his grandchildren. So my, nie- my nephews, I miss them. I would like to spend more time with them but I don't want to create a world that they're going to curse me for. I, I'm overstating it, but you know, and the greatest love that I can show for them is, is I believe given the, given the, the situation as I understand it is not to pollute the world, you know, well over these limits, but for him, it's just the, the moment of seeing them and it's just nothing else matters. And to me, the, these beliefs, I mean, he would say, these are my values. I've, I've, I've valued my family and end of story. I can afford it. I can go. I'm going to go. I'm going to go see my grandchildren. You know, I've gotten to a place where I feel like flying. My view on that is a flight will get you to someone. Flying in general will get them to live far apart in the first place where you don't see them. It always, it, it's, it's always going to be a trade off, trade on and off. I mean, it's a, or what we would say, cost benefit analysis. So am I doing more damage by flying or am I doing more damage by using the electricity of, running all this stuff so I can do Skype sessions um, and the servers that are sucking up all the power to enable that, which is worse. I don't know. You know, it's the same thing around, well, the Prius is great. Well, actually it crushes the environment with all the battery stuff, mm-hmm. right? The environmental, environmental impact. And who knows if this is right or not. I'm, I happen to be a fan of race cars, right? So a car, you know, you have cars that have shitty gas mileage, but have less overall damage to the environment than a Prius with all its batteries and all the, the stuff that goes into producing the batteries. Who's right? I don't know. So there I, well, I don't, we're over an hour into this. So maybe it's uh, leave this for a future time. And something that's hovering in my mind is like so much of what you say resonates with me. And I keep going back and forth. I think maybe I said this before of there's the, the parable of the one guy makes you feel like he's the smartest person in the world. And the other guy makes you feel like you're the smartest person in the world. And I keep going back and forth because I keep, you keep saying things I'm like, oh man, you really crystallized what something I've been working on. And you make me feel like, but then I also feel like, yeah, but all I did was copy things from an email and put my password onto Zoom. And I wasn't praying for my heart to burst so that I could, which actually what you said now, I, I kept thinking about what you're saying there. And the feeling of the release that you would get is actually, you weren't, it wasn't a release. It was actually you'd achieve a goal. Yeah. It's one of two goals, die or be a seal. And that death was not a, that death was not defeat. It was actually achievement. Yeah. Your dying breath, you'd be like, did it. Uh, like, finally, <laughs> this is over. Not, wait, not just that it's over. Finally, like I, I, I crossed the finish line. Yeah. Look, this was second place. Yeah. I mean, you could say, I would imagine if that moment came and you had the time to think about it, you know, the time between the heart bursting and the brain losing its last oxygen, you might think to yourself, oh, it turns out I physically was incapable. And therefore this was, this was it. And through, through no fault of my own, right. I didn't pick my genetics or whatever. And I did it. Like that would be, you would, you, there'd be like the smile. Like you, I didn't quit. 
Yeah. yeah. I didn't quit. Yeah, for sure. And I'm very glad that didn't happen. So we're, we're, we're all clear on that. <laughs> <laughs> and oh, man, you know, I think of, yeah, there's just been times when I've done sports and things where I've done athletic things and I've pushed myself and, but it's not to that limit. And it's a kind of funny feeling of, of, uh, or maybe, I, I don't know. The physics was pretty up there. Did I pray for death? I didn't quite pray for death, but. Well, it wasn't pray. It was will with everything I had. Like that's, that's why I say it that way, because that was my experience of it, of every ounce that I had, everything, every neuron, every cell was trying to, I, I wanted it all to be over because that was the only other path. Like you said, there were two things. It was only two things, which was nice because I didn't spend a lot of time wasting mental or emotional self-regulation on things that didn't help me or serve me. I was able to put it all into the, into the one thing, which was, was physical, mental, and emotional self-regulation towards one specific goal, not around impressing my dad or not embarrassing myself, you know, all those other things, those got filtered out or they weren't filtered out. They just weren't part of what I was putting my energy towards, which meant I had more energy than others. You know, we, how often do we do this in life, right? How often do we really need to work on something where we need our self-regulation mentally, physically, emotionally, maybe it's a relationship, maybe it's leading a team, maybe it's our own performance in this specific thing where we let ourselves spend our limited resources of self-regulation on other stuff. Like, what is, what does she think about me? You know, I'm, I think about that conversation from three weeks ago that I can't change anymore. I'm wasting limited resources on stuff that doesn't matter. And so a lot of people listening to this are thinking scarcity mindset. They're thinking, I'm not, because to me, it's not scarcity. It's fixed. It's training. You'd be like saying, is, do I have a scarcity mindset by the fact that I think that I have a limited ability to throw a baseball? No, I do. Because I have so many neural connections around throwing a baseball. It's the same thing here. I'm not saying that we don't have unlimited reserves. I'm saying we don't have unlimited reserves. Physiologically, they can see how many neural connections you got in certain parts of your brain. Like that's real. A lot of people listening to this and thinking, wow, Larry's really got something I wish I had. Too bad I don't. And that's why I can't get what he's gotten. And that's they, so they've got a whole bunch of quitting neural pathways in their brain. Now, the cool part is, is you can change that today, right? And it's as simple as like, I think I might've used this example before. I like drinking beer. So I'm going to have a beer at some point today, or I'm not. I'm going to go to the fridge. I'm going to open the door. I'm going to look at the beer. I'm going to pause for at least a second and decide to drink the beer or not. That's like putting a penny in. Sometimes I choose not to. I just put a quarter in. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I work really hard. I get the beer out and I hold it and it's cold and oh, it feels so good right now. And then I put it back. Oh, I just put a dollar in the bank. Mm-hmm. So it's up to you, right? And I, I did a, a Facebook Live around skiing. I love the ski bin out here in Park City and everyone's running the lifts and I'm going to the lift and then hiking for 25 minutes for a seven minute run. The snow's better over there, but why am I doing it? Every step I take for those 25 minutes is money in the self-regulation bank. Why not double up? I get to enjoy myself, get better skiing, and I get to take the harder route so that when I need the ability to self-regulate, I got the money in the bank. Yeah. it's. Uh, I, I was saying to someone the other day, or I don't know, I did a three-day, well, this was a two and a half day fast, so just water. And I was like, I somehow implied, I forget the exact words, but I was like, I'm doing it to, to make my life better. And the guy was like, how is that making your life better? And I was like, is this not obvious? 
one of the big discoveries, I, I can't help but share this, is a lot of what passes as hunger is not hunger. And I really feel it when I'm walking home, especially when I'm walking up the stairs. And when I put my hand on the doorknob, my stomach is like, feed me. And I would normally call that hunger. But when you can't eat, it passes right away. Exactly. Yeah. It's the bell. It's the bell. Right. It's Pavlovian. It's like, it's as Pavlovian as you can get. Cause I just always eat when I get in the house. And so now I specifically, I'll get home and like, I might even go and into the kitchen's right here. So I'll like walk into it and then I'm like, okay, so time to do the burpees. And then better yet, make, make your food and have it sit there. Yeah. And put it back in the fridge and then do some burpees. Like that's leave it out. Yeah. And then leave it out. And then come up to it and then take a shower. (laughs) Yeah. You could, that's what I'm saying. So the person sitting there, I don't have what Larry has. Yes, you don't. Cause you haven't been practicing it. I've been practicing it since I was third grade. You know, I started practicing it when I got picked on, got picked on. I got bullied as a little kid. Instead of responding by yelling and arguing, I didn't show any response. I was putting money in the bank then. I did it every time I ran uh, at the Naval Academy, we'd run what they called an inner and outer, which is kind of around the, the perimeter of the school. Every time I got to the Severn River, I jumped in the river. I didn't care what the temperature was. I didn't want to jump in the river because it was cold. Mm-hmm. But the results of yeah, I wanted to to I wanted to not want to jump in the river and to jump in the river because I'm like, oh, putting some money in the bank. So you can do this every day, every minute, simply by the as simple as saying, "I'm gonna I'm gonna eat a cupcake." People could think eating a cupcake is utter loss. Not if you wait. If you just wait one second, you've just done a little bit gotten a little closer to Larry's self-regulation. If you wait a minute, if you wait three minutes, if you put the cupcake back, holy crap. And that's why I keep this idea of a piggy bank. And am I putting a penny, a quarter, a dollar or a hundred dollar bill in it? Mm-hmm. It's possible. Anyone can do this because it's, it's neurological and physiological. No one has, well, there might be someone with some brain injury somewhere that can't, but yeah, that's error. probably not, they're probably not listening to this podcast. <laughs> and say a hundred people did this and put a lot of hundred dollar bills in their bank account, in their piggy bank. How many would then choose to go back to the old ways? Well, it, what's cool about it is it's choice. So it's up to you. It's really up to you to choose or not choose. But the fact that you've got the self-regulation going, you've, you put money in the bank, you can now make a choice where most people don't make a choice. I bet none of them would go back. No, they won't. Be. Well, it isn't about going back. It's where you are. And it's about Again, putting in the money. That's why I don't believe it's a scarcity mindset. Like I'm putting, I've I put a ton of money in that bank. I've got more self-regulation than I need for 99.999% of my life. And even I find times where I don't have enough mm-hmm. and that's okay. Yeah. Just here's, here's something that, why I like people who have money in the bank in this, in this language, here's something I've learned doesn't work very well in life is when someone says something that really is, would annoy anyone and maybe they don't even realize it. And then I say to them, that really annoyed me. And they're like, I wasn't, they have the reason for saying it that wasn't intending to annoy me. And, I, and then if I say, look, I'm going to say it to you and you'll feel yourself get annoyed. And then I just want you to feel it. And then let's get back to this conversation. And then I'll do it to them and they get annoyed and the old conversation's gone. Now they're just annoyed at me. And they're like, you're an asshole, Josh. <laughs> I'm like, I just told you I was just to demonstrate it. I wasn't, I'm, I don't really mean it. And there, it's gone. Like this emotion, uh, there's a name for it. The psychologists call it um, empathy gap. A cool part is mental, physical, and emotional self-regulation are the same parts of the brain. So if mm-hmm. you practice on one, as long as you have purpose, you can use it in another. 
So that's, it's neat because every dollar I put in, it's actually like three bucks kind of, because I could spend it on mental self-regulation, focus on say a task, uh, getting the right answer past the obvious ones, or I could spend it on emotional self-regulation where I don't let you annoy me, or I could spend it on physical self-regulation. I could do 10 burpees instead of two. So it's cool. Like any dollar I put in is money and I can spend it in any one of those three domains. And yeah, which is part of why I, physical fitness is so valuable to me. I mean, I played sports all for a long time, but living such an intellectual life and I would look at the like muscle people with big muscles and think, well, they're just muscle heads, not quite so bluntly, but you know, and then now I'm like, oh man, it's the same. There's so much overlap. I wish I'd gotten this earlier and it would make it easier to do harder things. Actually, my, my little, my mental model that I give myself, my, my, my perspective on this is, uh, I say that physical fitness trains the mind, learning trains the body, just as a nice little way to think about it. I mean, they both do both, but I like to overstate it. You know, I'm, I'm kind of also toying with the idea of, of, you know, I do this pattern with, with people on the podcast. Usually I, I talk about the environment and ask them what their values with the environment are, and then ask them if they're, if they're up for taking on something that they're not already doing. Are you up for something? Sure. Well, is the environment something that matters to you? Is it, is it like, is it something that is... I mean, if it's not important, then I don't want to force anything. It's not my top five, right? It, for right now, uh, to me, it is, I can't, because I'm, I think through stuff, right? I can't deny the risk associated with not caring, I guess is the best way to say. And so from that, I can't, if anything, like if, where do I feel some guilt? Like I feel some guilt there because I'm, I know I don't pay attention a lot or as much as I feel that is appropriate. So when you think about the environment or the guilt comes from somewhere, what does the environment mean to you? Or what do you think, when you think about it, what do you think about? Uh, So I go, I, I go pretty logical about it. We need this planet to survive. And if we don't take care of it, it's going to win and we're going to lose, right? We're not going to destroy the planet. Mm -hmm. We'll cause enough damage that it's going to destroy us. And so that's where from there, I'm like, well, crap, I don't want that to happen. You know, uh-huh. we need to take care of that. And so I'd say that would be the, the uh, simplest way to describe my, say, cosmology around it. I mean, you said destroy or destruct. So I, that we are destroying it. I read mindlessly. Well, I don't believe that, right? I believe we're impacting it. And we may impact it enough that it destroys us. Okay. I don't believe that human beings can destroy the planet. I believe human beings can impact the planet enough that it responds in a way that is unhealthy for us as a species. So we probably a different, I don't know. Again, that's where my precision language usually is troublesome because I I'm using very specific words. You said something that a lot of people don't say, which is that we, we are the active ones in the climate or the, the environment is responding to us. Now then it has its effects back on us, but it's not the environment is the active player here. Yeah, I believe it's, it is active, but we are an input into it, right? It, it isn't a, it isn't a closed system. Well, I mean, it all, arguably it is a closed system. You know, the oil we take out of the ground, we turn into CO2 and, you know, it is a closed system. So I guess it's more of a, I, I think if I was again to even push further on it, uh, I believe we are having an inappropriate impact 
as part of the system, which is where we could end up in trouble. The way I get to is I used to say my behavior might cause suffering to others. And sometimes I say that in terms of the planet, it's not that we're going to destroy it. Obviously it's going to be around the, but until think, it's not until the sun burns it up. Yeah, actually it could be that there's a red giant past where we are and this earth still is going through a very, what do you call it? When a gas is very a rarefied gas, like it could still be there in the, within the sun anyway. But on a human time scale, we're behaving in ways that lower the planet's ability to sustain life and human civilization. Exactly. That's why I go back to, you know, we, if we impact it enough, it's going to destroy us. Like we're going to not, it's going to impact us in negative ways. And again, as with emotions, not necessarily good or bad. It's some people say ineffective for what I want. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Like your kids to continued life and not get a sunburn every time I leave and not getting sick. Yeah. It reminds me of uh, once I was listening, I forget who it was. Someone said, he was talking about someone who said something really like, I don't use this word very much, but I don't know. Someone said something stupid. And he's like, you know, at times like that, you just wish you could go out to the far reaches of the solar system, just at the very edge and just nudge uh, one of the asteroids. So it'll come in and crash on earth and destroy us all <laughs> when people talk. Anyway, so well, maybe uh, <laughs> odds are that's going to happen. You know, we, have, we have no idea. At some point. And so it feels to me, I'm hearing that we, we could hurt ourselves. And it, it sounds like there's, you would like some change in what we're largely doing. Yeah. I don't think it's going to be bad. Right. I think, I think change would be positive. And so what I invite you at your option, if it fits into what you're doing and if, and it would further this part of you to do something that you're not already doing to act on that value. And it's not a lot of people hear what's the biggest or most important thing you can do, but that's not what I'm asking. It's, it's not necessarily what the time says, but it does have to be something new that you're not already doing. And it has to be something that has a physically measurable effect, not just learning or knowledge or, um, or awareness. So I would say, uh, I think I, this is what I can commit to. Uh, we had a babysitter in, uh, Florida. We lived on the beach in Florida and we're going back there in a couple of weeks, uh, who every now and again would take the boys down and the point of taking them down was to walk around and fill up a bag with garbage from the beach which i thought was cool like really cool and they enjoyed it it's like treasure hunt of trash and they got the trash and they throw it away and it was saving you know it was cleaning up the ocean and cleaning up the beach i never participated with that so what i can commit to is a minimum of once a week while we're down there i'll take the boys down and we'll we'll collect up three bags of trash Okay. You know, the next thing I, I do in this process is to make it a smart goal. And I'm like, that's a smart goal already. <laughs> I don't, I, I didn't expect it. Like I was like, he's not going to come up with something vague here. I, I predict it's I'm going to do better <laughs> with garbage. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's not how I work. <laughs> so cool. So let's make that something that I'll, I'll ask you about that. If it, that's going to be, when are you going, you're going down there? We're late, July 1st. So a couple of weeks and then we'll be there through December. So if we talk in July or August next time, then you will have done this a few times and we can hear how it goes. For sure. Okay. Now I predict, I predict that you're thinking now, oh, you're going to like it. And I predict that however much you think you're going to like it, that you're going to like it even more for reasons that you could not have predicted. And I, I like to say, and I like to say I could bet you on that and you could even win the bet by lying, but it's going to feel so much better than you expected. You will not be unable, unable to lie about it. it. I, I think I a hundred percent agree that you're right. 
because it's going to be connection time with the boys. It's, it's, I get to see them develop. I get to have fun on the beach with them. And I love the ocean between spearfishing and free diving and kite surfing. And I hate seeing the garbage on the beach. So, I mean, I can think of three, four ways just right now that's going to be fulfilling. Yeah. And I think money in the piggy bank too. Yep. And I'll tell you, I'm going to share with you something that I've developed. Like I pick up a piece of trash a day and sadly in New York, I, I don't have to even deviate. I, I don't even go out of my way. Like if it's not right in front of me, I usually want to pick it up because I, I can do 10 a day, just that. And actually when I took the train back from California and I was between LA and Houston, there were times when there was some whistle stop that was like two hours in any direction. There was no phone signal or internet or whatever. And they'd say, okay, anyone wants to go? And everyone got to have their cigarettes. And I would just go out to stretch my legs. I could pick up garbage there too. Anyway, so as I said earlier, I can look at a pile of garbage and, and like get the beauty of nature in that. Just like in a grain of sand, I can see the Rockies. But even so, there's st- I have to figure this out. There's still something that in, in the Rockies that is much more accessible. Mm-hmm. And there's something about, you know, one of my coaching clients, he just took a vacation for his first vacation, like a, years and years and years. And he was like, I don't need a vacation. And he comes back and he's like, wow, that was really useful. <laughs> and he was like, out in nature. And nature has a way of doing that. And I don't live in a world, a hundred years ago, even someone in New York City could probably walk and be in nature. And I don't live in that world. Like people fly all the way up to the top of the Amazon and they still don't achieve it. Forgetting about putting aside that the flying and the tourist money is like undoing it. But even just, even if it weren't, it's very difficult to get. And maybe it's not even possible. Maybe it's just, you got to go to like the South Pole to get it or something. And so I don't have to be in a place where you see no hand of man attached. Yeah. And it is big, you know, that's a big old undertaking to be able to get to those places. Yeah. Whereas it used to be, you know, just go to Walden Pond. There it is. I mean, people can argue that, you know, his mother was washing his clothes and stuff like that, but it was more than it is now. And I don't have that, that, that world is not available to me anymore, but, ah, it, okay, then it is there by my choice because when I pick up garbage, that for me is that. Yeah. And in fact, it has something that that doesn't have because that is a passive enjoyment yeah. of something that's there. It's observing something, whereas I'm actively bringing it back. And so a lot of people would say picking up garbage is getting my hands dirty. I think it's, it's one of the cleaner things that I could do. I agree. And it is, even though it is the heart of litter, it is for me in my heart a return to nature. Yep. And so that's one of the things I didn't realize that would come to me, but it's come to me through practice. You know, some of the stuff you have to work at, some of it just by dint of practice, it emerges maybe through practice from other from previous practice leads it to emerge by unconscious effort. Mm-hmm. So, well, now we're now people without even listening to us, they saw that it was like 90 minutes and they're like, Oh, I can't watch that one. <laughs> I can't listen to that one. Well, you break it up. Maybe partly I'm, I'm afraid of after we hang up, I have to, uh, save the file, which it means I have to name the file, which means that going back to the uh, copying and pasting letter by letter. <laughs> Good luck. I, well, yeah. And um, anything to close with on this particular conversation? Is there anything you want to say to the listeners? Other than, uh, you know, this was a, a rambling, you know, a really cool rambling conversation, which I truly enjoyed uh, coming back to, you know, for those of that, for anyone that was listening, especially to how I look at things and how I break things apart, that is that is what I've I've developed as a big skill. And how do we leverage that now? We leverage that now by helping 
individuals and organizations, special entrepreneurial uh, individuals, so people between 400,000 a year and two to three million a year, uh, be able to increase their ability to lead their teams. And so if you liked, if you, if you got felt some connection to how I look at stuff, reach out to us. Uh, we've got some really cool programs. Everything we do is real systematic and very applicable. So we love to, that's how we help and grow in this world and also create the community that we want uh, in the people we get to work with. So uh, you can reach us at uh, plan-site, uh, P-L-A-N-S-I-G-H-T.com. I think it's forward slash leaders uh, as a page where there's going to be some way to contact us. So uh, reach out if you're interested. Uh, love to be able to share our gifts and our insights with everyone. Okay. And I'll say that I've already shared this with someone and he's talking to you guys and he's like, I can't wait. So uh, yeah. And I can't wait either at some point. For sure. Alrighty then. All right, Larry, thank you very much. My pleasure. Talk to you later. I have to say that Larry got me thinking a lot about the putting money in the bank metaphor. I've been a lot of times when I do stuff and hold myself back from something that I want to do, now I start thinking, oh, I put another penny, I put another quarter in the bank. Larry lives by his values. Protecting our environment will require billions of people living by new values or values that I think that they have, but that they're not living by. I've talked to a lot of people about environmental values and everyone values clean air, land, and water. Now let's consider a value of his. I heard one was simplicity. Some might think such dedication to a single value might mean missing out on other things. Is it sacrificing? Whether you want to live as simply as Larry does is not the relevant question. The relevant question is, do you want to live by your values as much as he does by his? Because you can, and he's happy, accomplished, and it sounds like his family is as close and full of love as families come. He has little stuff, but lives in abundance. That's what we have to look forward to, materially speaking. We can live with as much abundance, love, and whatever we value, it may not be material abundance, but our experience of abundance, which is what matters. And this is one of the main things that I take away from Larry, is that we can make our worlds what we want it to be, even if the material world isn't giving us the abundance the way we thought, like more flying or more meat or things like that. It's not about deprivation and sacrifice. It's about joy, connection, community, and things like that. Did you feel inspired too? Then act. Go to joshuaspodak.com slash podcast and click to commit to your personal challenge so you can inspire others. Value means better and worse, and living by your values means living better by your values. You may struggle at first, but it's the hero's journey from living by others' values to living by yours. People say that little things add up. I won't argue against it, but what I find counts is acting. Doing something, anything, starts that mindset shift from the debilitating others should act first or making excuses to the empowering I can make a difference and living by my values improves my life. I don't have to wait for others to act first. I'm looking for leaders, people who will bring what works here in this podcast to communities I haven't reached. Billions of people want to change their behavior. There's room for leadership from personal leadership of just yourself to whatever scale you want. Start by acting and changing yourself. Go to joshuaspodak.com slash podcast and commit to your personal challenge.